from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, October 3rd. I'm Marco Werman. The head of Saudi Arabia's religious police force says he'll curb abuses. His officers are known for strictly enforcing Islamic dress codes. If they feel that women aren't dressed properly, they will sometimes use force to tell them either they have to dress more modestly or they have to leave the shopping centers. And later, a writer's wry take on life in Moscow. Russia is kind of a police state, but it's one that's not based on, you know, uh, mass terror. It's just mass inconvenience and corruption and incompetence. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by WGBH, producer of Frontline, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney have crafted their campaign narratives, telling you who they are and how they would lead. But there's more to their stories, revealing interviews and fresh insights on Frontline's The Choice 2012, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's a big week for the presidential election. We mean, of course, Venezuela's presidential election. And that's what we're going to talk about right now. Hugo Chavez hopes to win another six-year term in Sunday's vote. He faces opposition leader Enrique Capriles. Both candidates are making their final pitches in TV ads and stump speeches. They're even taking their campaigns into neighboring Colombia to pick up every last vote. John Otis has that part of the story. Here in the bustling Colombian border city of Cucuta, there are about 10,000 Venezuelans who are eligible to vote in Sunday's election. Some were born in Venezuela, but many are Colombians. They secured Venezuelan citizenship from the socialist government of Hugo Chavez, who's held power for the past 14 years. Chavez made it easier for foreigners to gain Venezuelan citizenship. That makes them eligible for government programs, like free universities, cheap bank loans, and even pensions. In return, Chavez expects these newly minted Venezuelans to vote for him. Pro-Chavez music blares from a voter information booth next to a bridge that connects Colombia with Venezuela. The bridge closes on election day, so the Chavez campaign plans to bus voters across the border the night before. They'll receive free lodging and meals, plus a ride back to Colombia after they vote. That's a lot of effort to cast a ballot, but that proves that voters are highly motivated to keep the Venezuelan leader in power, says Humberto Rangel. He works for the Chavez campaign. He says people seek help from this revolutionary and socialist government. That's why many people on the Colombian side of the border come to Venezuela. They want to re-elect Comandante Chavez. A good example is Leticia Chaustre. She's come to this Chavez campaign office in Cucuta seeking a bus ride so she can vote. 
She's Colombian, but her two sons were born in Venezuela, which made her eligible for Venezuelan citizenship. She says dual citizenship makes it easier to travel to Venezuela to visit family members and bring cheap goods back into Colombia. Opposition candidate Enrique Capriles is also courting supporters in Colombia. Near the border bridge, I meet Jonathan Rangel, who works for the Capriles campaign. He claims many cross-border voters fled Venezuela because they couldn't stomach Chavez's authoritarian rule. These voters truly love their country. They truly want a change. They live outside of Venezuela, but they want to come back. But Capriles's efforts pale in comparison to Chavez's massive get-out-the-vote machine. Venezuela holds some of the world's largest oil reserves, and the Chavez government has funneled much of the wealth into health, education, and housing programs. Besides reducing poverty, these programs have boosted the president's popularity. And as Sunday's election approaches, the government is flaunting its largesse. Just across the bridge in the Venezuelan town of Ureña, I meet Mayor Nelson Becerra. He shows me a caravan of 50 new SUVs that the government is delivering to poor communities along the border. But the government is also using more ominous ways to maintain the upper hand. Nearly every office of the federal government, including the Electoral Council, is stacked with Chavez allies. His government has harassed critical journalists and forced scores of opposition radio stations off the air. It also controls many TV stations. And Chavez is now using them to savage Capriles. In this speech broadcast Monday on state TV, Chavez accused Capriles of looking overseas for campaign donations from money launderers, mafia kingpins, and drug traffickers. Yet Capriles is turning out to be the biggest challenge to Chavez since he was first elected in 1998. Most polls give Chavez the edge, but the opposition contends that many Capriles supporters are afraid to tell pollsters how they really intend to vote. Lucy Araque covers politics for the Cucuta newspaper La Opinión. She says that after Miami, Cucuta is home to the second largest population of Venezuelan expatriates, and in a tight race, their votes could be crucial. For The World, I'm John Otis in Cucuta, Colombia. Many of the Venezuelans in Florida regularly vote in their home country's elections, but this year they can't cast a ballot at the Venezuelan consulate in Miami. The Chavez government closed it in January, so Venezuelan expats have to travel to New Orleans to vote. One of them is Luigi Boria. He's a city councilor there in Doral, Florida, and he's running for mayor there. So, Mr. Boria, New Orleans isn't exactly down the street for you. Why are you going? Well, I'm going because uh, as a Venezuelan, uh, Venezuela gave me the right to vote. And that's why I want to take the opportunity to help my country or my original country, because uh, now I am a U.S. citizen. And I want to help another country in South America to be free of the dictators. And that's why I'm, I'm going to New Orleans this weekend to see how can I help the people of Venezuela to get free. I assume from the way you're uh, phrasing that, that you're not a supporter of Hugo Chavez. Of course not. 
there's always a way and, and supporting the other person, which is Enrique Capriles. And I gather that a lot of the Venezuelans in South Florida feel the same way as you? Yes, yes. I would say 99%. How is this voting process in New Orleans going to disrupt your life? Are, are they allowing you to vote on the weekend so you can kind of make a trip out of it? Actually, the day of the vote is uh, Sunday. And uh, that's why we're going to New Orleans. It will take us uh, 18 hours if we go by a bus, but I'm uh, planning to go in an airplane. How many others are planning to make the trek and, and how are they getting there? Most of the people are going by buses and cars, but, uh, you know, there are, I believe, 10 planes going to New Orleans. 10 airplanes uh, going yeah. to New Orleans to take Venezuelans to vote. Yes. I think we're going to have like 10,000 people from Venezuela going to New Orleans, but a lot of people from here are helping the Venezuelan people to get the money to go because we have to spend, uh, you know, more to go and vote. Mr. Boria, it was a diplomatic spat, as you know, that led to the closure of the Venezuelan consulate in Miami. But um, I'm just wondering what you make of the fact that Venezuelans in Florida now have to travel so far to vote in their home country's presidential election. Why, just before a major national election, does the consulate close, do you think? Well, the retaliation from the Venezuelan government to the U.S., which only affects us, you know, is sad. The only people affected by the retaliation is the Venezuelan people. Luigi Boria, a city councilor in Doral, Florida, he's going to New Orleans this weekend to vote in Venezuela's presidential election. Julia Yaffe knows what it's like to live away from home. The where home is is complicated. Yaffe was born in Moscow and spent part of her childhood there, but then her family moved to the United States in 1990. In 2009, she went back to Russia on a Fulbright and worked as a journalist. Now she's returned to America and is writing about what drove her mad about life in Moscow and what she's pining for. For starters, Yaffe says drinking customs in Russia aren't just about the alcohol. When you drink vodka, the, there's a whole ritual to it that's really quite delicious because you have things on any Russian menu that go with the shot glass. So cured lard, pickled vegetables, salted mushrooms of all sorts, herring, all these delicious Russian snacks that you chase vodka with. Mm. I'll miss that. You're going to have to prepare that at home. I don't know if you're going to find that in, mm-hmm. in D.C. Yeah. Writing about the Russian bureaucracy, you say, I won't miss needing my passport for everything, including returning a pair of flip-flops to the store. Did that really happen to you? They, they asked you for your passport when you took a pair of plastic thongs back? Absolutely. Why? Russia is kind of a police state, and Russians have... Even today? Yes. But it's one that's not based on, you know, mass terror. It's just mass inconvenience and corruption and incompetence. <laughs> Russia's not, not that evil. When I returned that pair of flip-flops, I remember I had to write out the passport number. And uh, when I asked the cashier whether or not they needed a blood sample for me, they were a little confused. You were being sarcastic, but maybe they thought, mm, uh, maybe we do yeah, need a blood not? sample. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You also write that you won't miss the fact that Jewish culture and Jewish people have mostly disappeared from Moscow, nor the casual racism and, as you write, the relax, I was just joking, anti-Semitism. How pervasive is that still today? 
It's not as bad as I expected. Again, my, my parents left, and I left with them, as Jewish refugees. When they left, they were kind of hounded at every turn by institutionalized anti-Semitism. Now it's kind of on the level of Freudian slips, mm. you know, jokes about your cheapness or that you're good with money from friends that you thought were cosmopolitan and well-traveled and educated. What do you think it says about our understanding of Russia, that so many of the things you will miss and not miss are actually things we almost expect from Russia? What I'm surprised by is these stereotypes or these things that you expect to see coming out of Russia. I'll actually miss them. I've become really sarcastic and very mean in my three years there. Otherwise, cashiers will eat you alive. I have a feeling I'll get a lot duller in D.C. Why did you become mean? Just because of the cashiers? It's a pretty hostile, sharp-elbowed town. I had two friends come visit me shortly after I moved there, one of whom is uh, from New York and one of whom is Swiss-German. Very polite, very level-headed, even-keeled. And by day 10 of their visit, somebody in the metro bumped into my Swiss-German friend. He, without dropping a beat, wheeled around and hurled a very, very loud expletive at her. Wow. So it does it to everyone. Yeah, got to get that tough skin going early yeah. on. So throw us off balance here. What is a, a non-stereotypical thing that you will or will not miss about Moscow? Because you don't trust people there. When you do come across somebody you trust, you bond with them very, very closely. The way that Russians do friendship, nobody else does friendship. Again, I know that's a cliche, but they're really good at being friends. Mm. Partly they need to be because there's no social safety nets that will catch them. So if you're in trouble, you're probably not going to call the police because the police might make it worse, or at the very least, they'll try to get some money out of you. You're going to call your friends. When you do come across, you know, that really good friend or that really wonderful night where you have a couple glasses of wine or a few shots of vodka and have some really good conversation to really, really, really savor that because the rest of the city around you is very harsh, very inconvenient, very tough to live in. So when you do come across those really lovely moments, they're especially sparkling in contrast to the rest of it. Julia Yaffe, a staff writer for The New Republic. She's just returned to the U.S. after spending three years in Russia. Julia, thank you very much and welcome home. Thank you. Still ahead, we speak with an investor who hopes his early money in Burma will rise like yeast on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The head of Saudi Arabia's religious police has been quoted as saying that he's going to curb the power of the force's officers. This after some Saudis have complained about abuses. The police in question work for the Commission for the Promotion of Virtue and Prevention of Vice. Their job is to enforce a ban on mingling between the sexes, make sure Saudi women dress modestly, and that men go to mosque for prayers. The BBC's Sebastian Usher is an Arab affairs analyst, and he's been following the story. Uh, Sebastian, first of all, what do these religious police, the Mutawa, what do they actually do? I mean, where do they go to kind of monitor that everybody's doing the right thing? 
Well, where you will see them mostly is in the shopping centres, which are the main kind of areas of entertainment in Saudi Arabia. And they're there to enforce several things. They're there to make sure that the five prayer times every day are enforced. That means if you're in a shop and the prayer call comes, they will make sure that it's closed. So it caused a lot of frustration amongst Saudis and expatriates. They're about to buy something, but at the front of a queue, the shop closes, they have to go to the back of the queue, it all has to start again. Mm. They also enforce, sometimes in quite a brutal way, the way that people should dress women particularly obviously if they feel that women aren't dressed properly they will go up to them they will sometimes use force to tell them either they have to dress more modestly or they have to leave the shopping centers so tell us about this announcement made by the head of the mutawa what was the context in which uh, you know he made it was it a press conference or something well, he spoke to two of the main uh, newspapers in Saudi Arabia, and he's a new man who was appointed earlier this year, and he replaced a hardline head of the Matawa, who I think the Saudi authorities felt that he wasn't responding enough to the feeling, the growing public feeling that the Matawa, the religious police, have overstepped the mark. So he has made quite a few announcements in the last few months to rein in the religious police. There have been several incidents where the religious police, for example, one was caught on a mobile phone, really quite violently berating a young woman in a shopping mall, telling her to get out because of her nail polish and because her face wasn't properly covered. That went viral. Mm. And that kind of thing has caused a lot of um, pressure within Saudi Arabia, the Saudi population itself, not just among the expatriates. So these interviews that he's given and have just been published, he was actually answering public concerns over that. So that's a new thing too, that an institution like this actually having its head answer questions. I mean, it wasn't answering questions like in a live press conference. This mm. would have been an interview where he would have control over the questions and the answers. But it's still an openness that was once very unusual in Saudi Arabia. So what are the rank and file members, you know, the beat cops, if you will, of the Mutawa? What do they think about this? Well, I've spoken to people in Saudi Arabia and talked about the changes that the new head has announced. And what they've been saying was quite interesting is that actually day to day, they felt that it's been more oppressive in quite a few places recently. And I think that's to do with people within the organization who resent what he's trying to do. A lot of these people who are in the religious police have become real religious zealots. Some of them were in prison and they got out of prison by learning the uh, Quran, the holy book of Islam, and they found a new identity through this. The BBC's Sebastian Usher, thanks so much. Thank you. He's the former top humanitarian official at the United Nations, known for his tireless work to relieve human suffering in places like northern Uganda, Sudan's Darfur region, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Here he is speaking about the situation in Darfur. Our number one problem is there is no political coherent effort to put an end to this man-made disaster. He is Jan Egelen, the soft-spoken Norwegian diplomat. Now, compare Egelin's low-volume demeanor with this musical tribute to his diplomatic achievements. But when hand grenades are flying, there's just one man you can trust. As you might detect there, the song is a piece of comedy. It's a work of Bord and Vergard Ilvesacker. They're a comedy duo known as Ilvis, who have their own talk show on Norwegian TV. And they felt Jan Egelin deserved the star treatment. 
I guess we felt that he's like a big hero, but he could walk the streets of Norway without being recognized, I guess, uh, at least by the people uh, in our age. So we felt that it would be cool to give him the attention he deserves. And uh, yeah, we just wanted to honor him. No, we haven't heard his reaction yet, so we're uh, we're excited to to hear what he thinks. You know, I think he's more busy saving the world uh, still. He's yeah. around, you know, providing some uh, contracts about not using landmines in war and uh, doing some peace talks. The production values on this video, all your videos, I mean, they're really up there. It's not like you got a handy cam and uh, filmed a, a little song you wrote. The thing is that we are not on a very high budget, but still we we have very good people working with it, and they they put all their passion into it. And, and that part of the song where you kind of go into full power ballad mode, I mean, you're in an arena. Was that for real? Yeah, it was actually was. for real. It was 25,000 people. In, it was actually uh, someone else's concert, and we uh, just uh, we had the opportunity to be like a support band for them. Who, whose and concert? I uh, it's a group called Mods. Uh, so it's I'm sure you heard about it. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't heard of them yet, but now I am. Oh, they're uh, coming! They're coming! <laughs> they're coming! Definitely. So you, so you piggybacked on the mods gig and uh, got uh, yeah, a great did. scene for your video. Yeah, it was a great scene for the video afterwards. But but for the when we were actually taping it, I think twenty five thousand people were wondering what the hell are we watching right now. <laughs> so it was a kind of strange vibe going on on stage there. Did you have to explain to them we're shooting a video about Jan Egeland? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of hard to explain when you're screaming to 25,000 people. What is actually happening right uh, now? <laughs> and just to explain, Eglon is quite a figure, you know. He has been peace-talking in several countries. Yeah. You don't get the, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. It's more like, come on, I want to drink beer. Yeah, <laughs> right, and, and well, 25,000 more people in Norway now know who uh, Jan Eglund is, I guess. Yeah, Which is our mission. So, uh, Jan Egeland isn't the only song you've written. Uh, here's a song written about Stonehenge, of all subjects. What's the purpose of Stonehenge? A giant granite birthday cake or a prison far too easy to escape? All these burning issues, but what you really want to know about is what does Stonehenge mean? Do you understand yeah. Stonehenge now? You know, after this song, I get huge amounts of tips on Twitter and email all the time of, uh, ah, I guess you're interested in this and there's some new explanation on Stonehenge mystery. <laughs> and um, It was fun in the beginning, but now it's like, okay, another explanation of Stonehenge. I love your guys' comedy. We've got uh, links to your videos uh, at theworld.org. Bord and Vigard Ilvesaker, the Norwegian comedy duo known as Ilvis, speaking with us from Oslo. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. What is the meaning of Stonehenge indeed? Still to come on the program, a little bit of Azerbaijan where you'd least expect it. But first, news headlines. You're listening to The World from PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, a guided tour of old age at a children's museum in Israel. If I feel old, in some ways, yes. Other ways, no. 
there's a small child who is bewildered by the fact of what happened to him. That story ahead on the world. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Whatever you do, don't get old. That's a common piece of advice given by the elderly to the young, not just here, but in any country. But knowing what it's like to be old before you actually are, that's not easily done, unless you happen to attend a new exhibit at a children's museum in Israel. It's called A Dialogue with Time, and it lets visitors experience old age. Reporter Daniel Estrin took the English language tour and sent us this report. Where do I look? Can you look to the camera? Okay, straight and the chin a little down. I have a bad feeling about this photo. All of us on the tour get our photos taken at the start of the exhibit. Later, on a large screen, we see what we'll look like when we're 80 years old. The wrinkles, the sagging skin. To a 20-something like me, it looks frighteningly realistic. That tick-tocking accompanies us through a zigzagged corridor plastered with questions written in English, Hebrew, and Arabic. How old are you? How old do you feel? Do you look older or younger than your age? The corridor leads to a room filled with interactive simulations that put you in an elderly person's shoes. One, quite literally, there are weighted shoes you Velcro onto your feet before you walk up some stairs. Elderly people have trouble climbing steps. You lose muscle mass when you age. That's not easy. You really feel like you have weights in your legs. There's also a device that you strap to your hand, causing it to shake, simulating tremors, while you try to thread a key through a keyhole to open a door. At another station, you pick up a phone and try to order movie tickets through an automated message, but every once in a while, the volume drops, simulating what it's like for elderly people who are hard of hearing. The exhibit was developed by a German organization. It designed two other museum exhibits that have toured throughout the world. Visitors fumble in pitch black at Dialogue in the Dark, which simulates what it's like to be blind. The tour guides themselves are blind. At the other exhibit, Dialogue in Silence, you wear earplugs to simulate what it's like to be deaf. The tour guides there are hearing impaired. The tour guides at the newest exhibit are, you guessed it, old. If I feel old, in some ways, yes, Otherwise, no. Emmanuel Dudai is our 73-year-old museum tour guide. Look, in every old person, there's a small child who is bewildered by the fact of what happened to him. In myself, I'm still an old child. Emmanuel takes the group through a series of rooms that challenge common notions of aging. At one point, he conducts a survey. Do you see a male 70 years old as a pilot? Most of the group says no. Sarah Gopher-Stevens, an Israeli visiting from California, explains her thinking. What's his ability to focus their lives at stake? 
But then Emmanuel plays a short video. It features an Israeli aviation expert who argues that older pilots are more experienced than younger ones. And no matter their age, pilots have to pass regular tests to prove they can safely fly a plane. Emmanuel says we're guilty of ageism. We consider age more than ability. The exhibit doesn't mention the most serious physical and mental degradation that many elderly people experience. Exhibit manager Moran Bodner says the main message here is that being old isn't always that bad. 80% of old people who live in Israel are living normal life, are very independent, and they don't need help. Only 20% need nursing care. So we want to show a true picture of what it is to be old in this country. For our tour guide, and many in Israel, making it to a ripe old age takes on an additional meaning. I didn't have a family. I invented a grandmother. I envied my friends who had a grandmother, but all my family perished in the Holocaust. I'm part of the generation that saw this country in the making. And I didn't have time to think that I'm getting old. I became old, and I like it. Dialogue with Time opened last month at the Israel Children's Museum in Cholon, near Tel Aviv. The exhibit is also set to open in Germany. And there's interest in exhibiting it in China and France, too. Why wouldn't there be? By the time I finish telling this story, everyone on this planet will have grown just a little bit older. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin, Cholon, in central Israel. After a two-week tour of the U.S., Aung San Suu Kyi is headed back to Myanmar. The Burmese opposition leader gave her final speech in Los Angeles. It was about her hopes for democracy in Myanmar. Those hopes are bolstered by the rapid changes the country has undergone in the past year. First, its military rulers freed Suu Kyi from house arrest. Then they allowed elections. For a country that was one of the world's most undemocratic, the changes are dizzying. The United States has lifted a number of sanctions on Myanmar, and now the country, also known as Burma, is starting to open up to foreign business. Ali Sher Ali is one of the first to take advantage of that. The Uzbek entrepreneur has set up Myanmar's first investment bank using his own money. He says it was love at first sight. When I visited Myanmar for the first time, it only was a two-day trip, but this was uh, sufficiently enough for me to understand that this country has enormous untapped potential. So you, you have experience coming out of Soviet-era Uzbekistan and, and all the other experiences you've had. You, you've had experience seeing opportunity in fairly economically bleak areas. So what gives you hope for returns on your investment in Myanmar? I am extremely bullish on Myanmar because of the following factors. We have seen success stories in Eastern Europe, um, the former Soviet Union countries, Russia, Kazakhstan, and particularly a country like Mongolia, where I spent the last four years uh, as an entrepreneur. These experiences uh, and the, the success stories I have seen in those countries give me optimism that uh, Myanmar will join the global economy and will retake its um, position as one of the prosperous nation in Southeast Asia. So faster growth, more profit for you and your investors uh, that, that you're bringing in. Um, th- there's no real legal framework for investment bankers in, in Myanmar, not yet anywhere. There's not even a Securities and Exchange Commission type thing to give you a license. Are, are you worried that this degree of insecurity could lead you to lose everything? Obviously, investing in frontier markets represent a significant risk. 
and there are many examples around the world, places like Venezuela and others. Yes, the regulation right now in Myanmar doesn't include the notion of an investment banking industry, but that was the case also in Russia. And so I think Myanmar, in five years down the road, will have quite dynamically growing investment banking industry, which uh, will be so attractive that uh, you will you will have uh, Wall Street banks present there. Uh, they will all be keen to move into Myanmar because that country represents one of the best opportunities in Asia, if not globally. I'm wondering, Mr. Ali, uh, how excited are your wife and kids being in a place where they might not see the same opportunities as you? In fact, I don't know, do they even want to be there? I think my wife is a hero. Without her, I would not be actually be able to, to move to, to Myanmar because I wanted us to be as a family together. So the fact that she visited with me and visited the place and she liked it and um, because she wanted to move in, you know, we, we're there. And uh, yes, we have four kids. They, it's a fascinating place. I think people are warm. Uh, it has... Uh, you know, gems in terms of architecture, the the cultural heritage. It's nice weather, nice food. Yes, there are not there are not many you know modern amenities. I mean, there is no Starbucks there. <laughs> Internet not working well, and there are not many you know choices in terms of restaurants. But we quite you know my wife and I we quite confident that's all that all will happen. Starbucks will be there. There will be multiplexes there. There will be Wi-Fi around Yangon. And uh, this kind of historical transformation that we can see with our eyes and being, at, uh, you know, really be part of that process, it's a, it's a privilege. And uh, my wife and I, we really um, treasure and value that. Speaking with us from London, Alisher Ali, founder of the first investment bank in Myanmar. Thanks for joining us and the best of luck to you. Thank you. In Germany, the government collects something called a religious tax. It's levied on anyone officially registered as a member of a religious congregation. It's about 8% of what you pay for your annual income tax. And recently, the Catholic Church in Germany issued a decree that basically said, pay up to its members. The church said those who don't pay will no longer be eligible to receive communion and other sacraments. The world's Jerry Haddon reports from Bavaria in southern Germany. There's an old, well-tended Catholic graveyard on a hill in the town of Dachau, some 20 minutes outside Munich. If you want to be buried here with a priest presiding and praying for your soul, and you haven't paid your church tax, forget it. Same goes for having your kids baptized, for receiving communion. In short, you got to pay to pray, according to a decree issued last week by Germany's Catholic bishops. You stay a member of the, the Catholic community, but you, you lose certain rights says Gelinda Kolbelstecher, an official at the Catholic Diocese in downtown Munich, one of the country's largest. It's the meaning of the church that that solidarity is shown if you pay your church tax. The member of the church is obliged to pay um, a contribution. Germany's church tax was set up to compensate religious institutions after most of their lands were confiscated in 1803. But a growing number of church activists are taking issue with the tax, among them, Christian Weissner, a resident of Dachau. He's with a group called We Are Church. He says church membership is based on faith, not on a financial contract. I think in Germany we have a very special situation that you are only 
can be a Catholic when you're paying church tax, but that's theologically wrong. If a person is baptized once, he is Catholic and he or she will be a Catholic all life long. Germany's Catholic Church has been losing more than 100,000 members a year, every year, for a couple of decades now. This in part as parishioners get turned off by sex abuse scandals and the church's conservative positions on issues like abortion and women priests. Weissner says church leaders should focus their energy on soul-searching, not on sending threatening missives to people who refuse to pay the tax. I think the bishops should ask people, why do you leave the church and what can we do for you? Uh, but now <laughs> they are sending them letters that says you can't be a godfather, godmother anymore, you can't have a church wedding, and you can't have a priest at your burial. This is a threatening message to people. But threatening may just be what the church is after, because among the multitudes abandoning the church, some are simply protesting the tax, yet still attending mass, going to confession, and so on. It's a tax dodge, church officials say, and it ends up hurting society's poorest. On one of Munich's busiest squares stands a small wood-sided mobile home called The Island. It's a rapid response center for people in crisis, paid for by the church tax. Social worker Wolfgang Tuch says counselors receive about 8,000 people a year, helping them through marriage and money problems, what have you. We want to be very near and close, close to the, to the people and its problems, to reduce the, the borders. To, they just should be on the way and say, oh, I feel totally bad. Oh, there's a door I can go in and there's a little island to, to find a little bit help. But good works aside, some members of the church itself say the latest plan to withhold sacraments from tax objectors could backfire. Pater Corbinian is a Benedictine monk whose parish is just down the road. Here, the monks run a soup kitchen for the homeless. This project doesn't use money from the church tax. The Benedictines have a brewery. Beer sales keep this place open. Corbinian says he thinks the new tax enforcement policy is going to drive even more people from the church. He says he likes Italy's system and Spain's, where everyone pays a much smaller annual tax, but you get to choose where the money goes, to the church or to some other social cause. And I think it would be much fairer. You know, the, the church in Germany is really rich. I think our archdiocese um, has more employees than the Holy See. Over at the diocese, Kobler Stecher confirms that the church's finances are sound. I think we are not struggling. We, we are doing well. But she insists the church is not lining its pockets with the religious tax, but using it to pay for its churches and programs. But activist Christian Weissner of We Are Church says his group isn't giving up. They're taking their demands to Rome next week to mark the 50th anniversary of the last major Roman Catholic reform, Vatican II. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Bavaria, Germany. For our geo-quiz, we're wondering where would you find a new statue of the former president of Azerbaijan? It's a life-size bronze statue of Haidar Aliyev. He ruled with a Stalinesque iron fist over the oil-rich nation until his son succeeded him in 2003. Baku would be a good guess. That's the capital of Azerbaijan and the largest city on the Caspian Sea. But then again, just about every major city in Azerbaijan has a larger-than-life statue of the Azeri strongman. Actually, the new statue we were looking for is in North America, in the largest Spanish-speaking city in the world. The statue is right near the newly refurbished Azerbaijan Park. 
This park is just by the Museum of Anthropology and opposite the, the Modern Art Museum. It is a particularly nice area and a green part of the city. It's just by La Parque Chapultepec. Think you know the answer? Stay with us. PRI Public Radio International. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH, producer of Frontline. Barack Obama and Mitt Romney have crafted their campaign narratives, telling you who they are and how they would lead. But there's more to their stories, revealing interviews and fresh insights on Frontline's The Choice 2012, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We're still searching for the answer to our geo-quiz today. It's a city in North America where a new statue of the late president of Azerbaijan has kicked up some controversy. The BBC's Will Grant has seen it quite recently. Where is this controversial statue of Haidar Aliyev? It is slap bang in the middle of one of the main avenues in Mexico City. Uh, It's on Avenida La Reforma, where the Azerbaijani government uh, has paid for a new sort of friendship park. And as you say, yes, Haider Aliyev presides over that park in a life-size bronze statue sitting in front of a marble map of uh, Azerbaijan. Every major city in Azerbaijan has a statue of Haidar Aliyev, uh, and yet he's this controversial figure accused of violating human rights, suppressing press freedom. He was a totalitarian ruler. What, why is he being celebrated in Mexico City? Well, that's the thing that's particularly angered a number of uh, journalists, academics and outspoken members of the academia in this country. A lot of people who I spoke to passing the monument simply didn't know why he'd be celebrated on an avenue that also has statues of Mahatma Gandhi, Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill and other international figures. So it's definitely one that I think uh, we haven't heard the end of here. Mexico City isn't the only place around the world that has parks that are kind of underwritten by the government of Azerbaijan. It's almost like they've got an adopt-a-highway program all over the world just to burnish uh, President Aliyev's uh, image. Why do you think everybody's willing to go along with this? Well, it's very hard to know. Certainly, we spoke to the ambassador here in Mexico, the Azerbaijani ambassador, who said that there was nothing underhand about this. This was simply that they were happy to take the opportunity to, as he put it, show their appreciation to the Mexican people by participating in an ambitious urban renewal project. That urban renewal project he's referring to is the fact that they underwrote to an estimated $5 million Mm. two parks in Mexico City, uh, including the statue. Um, I think when it comes to their critics, they would say that this is about putting on a brave new face of uh, the Azerbaijani government, uh, obviously a way of sort of improving their image in in the wider eyes of the world. Right. What do you hear from the streets? Are are there critics uh, of this uh, statue and this park? Well, I spent a a little while outside the statue and spoke to passers-by. There was a mixture of sort of bemusement and and, and confusion, really. I think uh, the bemusement came from the fact that people genuinely had no idea who he was and and, and quite why on earth President Aliyev would be uh, granted uh, such a a sort of honour. And then when one sort of spoke to people about exactly his record and what human rights groups say, I think there was a feeling that, well, if they've paid to improve the park, 
really we don't get a great deal of say about it, but that it was a pity that uh, the space wasn't used to honour some of Mexico's heroes or certainly people that had more resonance with Mexico. Right. So despite the controversy, a nice calm place to hang, if you don't mind Haidar Aliyev staring down at you. The BBC's Will Grant, not far from Azerbaijan Park in Mexico City. That is the answer to our GeoQuiz today. Will, thank you. Thanks, Marco. Didn't think we'd find it there. That's also part of this next story about a man who's a star in the Celtic music scene, but he's not Irish. His name is Carlos Nunez, and he's from Galicia in Spain. Here's reporter Beto Arcos. When he was only eight years old, Carlos Nunez started playing the bagpipes. The gaita, as the bagpipe is known in Galicia, opened the whole world of music around him. For me, the magical thing about the bagpipes, it was to discover that other countries like uh, Scotland, like uh, Ireland, like the Bretons in, in France, now all the Celtic countries, we play the same music, but we speak different languages. No, But the music makes us only one nation. No, I think Celtic music... It's a sort of Atlantic nation, and we are part of the same family. Núñez says during the dictatorship of Generalísimo Franco, Galician music was forbidden. Celtic musicians could only play underground. After Franco died in the mid-1970s, there was an explosion of Galician music, Núñez says he's the direct result of this energy that had built up over decades. Then, in the late 1980s, when he was still a boy, he met the masters of traditional Celtic music, the chieftains. And uh, I had the opportunity of uh, start to play with the chieftains when I was 13 years old. And with uh, 18 years old, I was playing with the chieftains. And then they invited me to, to come to America. My first concert in America, it was with the chieftains in this tribute to, to the Who, Roger Daltrey. We, we played with Alice Cooper, with Sinead O'Connor. Wow. Nunez launched his solo career built on a long list of collaborations. He's played with artists as varied as Laurie Anderson, Rai Cooter, Compay Segundo, Ryuichi Sakamoto, and Jordi Saval. But Nunez says it was the chieftains who had the biggest impact on his life. They always say to me, Carlos, don't think in your little country. Think in international. Think that the world is all connected and all the traditions are really the same, are really connected. This is the idea the chieftains gave me. For his first album, Brotherhood of Stars, Nunez invited musicians from all over the world and, at the suggestion of the chieftains, he also invited musicians from Andalusia's flamenco world to collaborate with musicians from the north of Spain. He says during the Franco dictatorship, Galician and flamenco musicians never played or recorded music together. Flamenco, it was the enemy. Think that for 50 years of dictatorship with Franco, the flamenco was the official music of Spain, the only possible music of Spain. And, uh, well, for us, the democracy was a liberation.
Today, Núñez says he's on a musical mission. He wants to explore the links between the music of Galicia and, by extension, the music of Spain, with the diverse musical cultures of Latin America and beyond. I think Latin America is like a cathedral, no, with many traditions at the same time. So I have a mission. I, I want to help. I, I want to make all these connections in the same way so many people as uh, the Chieftains, Los Lobos, Linda Ronstadt, they gave me the opportunity of play with, with they one day and, uh, and to learn. Carlos Núñez just released a double CD, Discover, and this week he starts his first major tour of the U.S. For the world, I'm Beto Arcos. Carlos Nunez playing his bagpipes. He is amazing. We have a video at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, macfound.org. PRI Public Radio International